0: Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's a story that's familiar to Mark and Luke as well. Jesus has just finished making a prediction of his persecution and death to his disciples, which seems an odd time for the mother of the sons of Zebedee to approach with a request, but she does. Listen now for the word of God. Then came the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. This is Jesus. And Jesus said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your left and one at your right in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left hand, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my Father. Now when the ten heard about this, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you will serve you. And whoever wishes to be first among you will be like your slave. Just as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning, I want to tell you about the greatest thing ever. But before I tell you, we've got some work to do together. You see, first we have to change the way we think about the word great. Otherwise, we run the risk of encountering the greatest thing ever and thinking, that doesn't seem so great at all. For as long as I can remember, the word great has been zealously employed by the commercial industry to describe products and ideals of all sorts. Sugar-coated cereal tastes great. And smooth, blemish-free and wrinkle-free skin looks great. If, if you wash yourself with this particular brand of shampoo, your hair is going to smell great. And somehow, the commercials claim that Bud Light is a great-tasting beer. No comment. I'm not here to critique the commercials. I just want to construct a generic model of the public opinion of greatness. Let's look a little bit closer at how the word great is used here. So if a commercial claims that something tastes great, it's trying to convince me that that product will be pleasing to me. And not just pleasing to my tastes, but it's going to be pleasing to my tastes in an exceptional manner. If a commercial promises great-looking skin or great-smelling hair, it's attempting to instill in me a confidence about my appearance and my hygiene should I choose to use this particular product. If an advertisement flaunts a great deal, it's attempting to make me feel good about how I choose to use my money. The bottom line the word great is often used to try and make me feel something. And that something is the selfish lust for my own personal betterment. Now, here's the nuance. Greatness implies an above-averageness. Therefore, in order for something to be great, we have to presume an average that greatness can surpass. So this is where the word great, as it's currently understood, becomes a problem for our physical, emotional, spiritual health when an advertisement promises us greatness and association with a particular product, the primary purpose is not to sell us that product. It's to sell us the notion that we aren't good enough yet. See, whatever they're telling us is that you could be great. If you eat this, and you drink this, and you wash with this, and you, and you dress like this. Whatever this is, it's only secondary to the commercial's function of, of trying to make us feel inadequate. Like we're lacking something. We become the blah, the boring, the average. Upon whose back the commercial industry climbs. And once we allow ourselves to be sold on the notion that we aren't good enough, we can be sold just about anything, even greatness. And that's the definition of great that we must free ourselves from. But we don't do it alone. Scripture is one of our greatest allies in this task. And to a world burdened by this greatness-led quest for self-aggrandizement, today's gospel lesson is truly good news. We're reminded that the selfish lust for greatness isn't a new concept to be struggled with. There's a worldly understanding of greatness in the disciples' minds when they begin to bicker over the request that the sons of Zebedee be given seats of honor in the coming kingdom. Well, Jesus, recognizing that his disciples Are looking at greatness the wrong way, he attempts to help them see more clearly what greatness truly is. You could see that Jesus is attempting to correct their vision. This is an illusion that Matthew hammers home by following this encounter between Jesus and his disciples with a short encounter between Jesus and two blind men whose sight Jesus restores. You know, Jesus says to his disciples, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. Now, if he could have, I think Jesus might have whipped out a copy of Yertle the Turtle here and flipped through a couple of pages, looked up at the disciples and said, hear what Dr. Seuss has to say. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I cannot look down on the places beyond. This throne that I sit on is too, too low down. I ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king. I'd be ruler of all that I see. And Jesus would have closed the book Gently shaking his head as he laughed benignly, said to his disciples, What a yurtly notion of greatness you have. Perhaps we too, like the disciples, have a yurtly definition of greatness floating around in our heads. Wherein greatness dangles above us like a carrot on a string, subjecting us to feeling perpetually deficient. This is not the way greatness will be with you, Jesus says. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew's gospel again. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants among them. It will not be so with you. Is Jesus criticizing the disciples here? Is he condemning us? I don't think so. I think he's setting us free. Jesus is giving us a new way of looking at greatness by shifting the paradigm from urinal the turtle to the love of God. And the love of God is the greatest thing ever. But this this is the way that Jesus is transforming the minds and the world that his disciples are called to live in. This is the way that he's trying to change the foundational reality of their existence and link it to the love of God, not trying to serve the whims of those in power. And if we live into this reality, then we are simultaneously living into a reality where we are good enough. And this is why we needed to rework our definition of greatness, Because the love of God is not great in the sense that it sits upon us, breaking our backs and oppressing us and subjecting us to second-class citizenship in the coming kingdom. The love of God is great in the sense that it takes on flesh and comes to us not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God loves you. You are good enough. This affirmation frames the radical new paradigm of greatness into which Jesus calls us to believe, to live, and to serve. So radical is this affirmation that we as a community of believers are able to place it directly after that moment in worship where we confess our sins, and then, sitting still in a silent prayer, try to convince God that we are indeed not good enough. Yes, you are, God says. Every time we confess, yes, you are good enough, and yes, I do still love you. There is no thwarting this greatness. Now, when Jesus begins to tell his disciples, whoever wishes to be great among you, he's not presenting a new way to greatness. He is subverting the definition of greatness to set the foundation on which the kingdom of God will grow. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Hmm. This is going to be impossible to achieve if our motivation for service is I must serve in order to be good enough in God's eyes because this subjects our service to a selfish aim and enslaves us in a definition of greatness where we aren't good enough yet. The type of service to which Jesus calls us is a response to the gift of God in Jesus' own life and death and resurrection by which we are made good enough. Our greatness is the result of God's gift to us. So no longer it's the result of personal promotion and achievement. In shifting the paradigm of greatness to the love of God, Jesus also shifts the motivation of our service to one another. We no longer serve To make ourselves good enough. Or to do something for someone. We serve graciously to give thanks to God. And to affirm that those with whom we serve are good enough too. The second we allow ourselves to believe that we are somehow better than the ones we serve. Or that they won't be good enough without our help. We've reverted to a yertely definition of Greatness. Paul wrestles with this too in his first letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church is struggling with the notion that some members are better than other members, especially those who who can speak in tongues. Well, Paul nips this in the bud by writing to them that they have all received gifts from the same spirit, gifts which are unique but interdependent, just as the body has many members that are unique but are all necessary for the healthy function of the whole. We are all bound together in the body of Christ, Paul writes. See, this is Paul's attempt at shifting the paradigm of greatness. When he encourages Corinthians to strive for the greater gifts, Paul is both reminding them of the Spirit which gives all gifts and making reference to those gifts which are used for the edification of the entire community. Paul's body metaphor shifts the paradigm of greatness by addressing those who would believe that they are greater and more important than others in the community and reminding them that they are an inseparable part of a body whose healthy existence requires caring about those members upon whose backs they have carelessly climbed to greatness. Just as we imagine Jesus telling his disciples, we can imagine Paul telling the Corinthians, you have a dangerously yertily definition of greatness here. Paul's response? It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's about God and what God is doing through you. Jesus responds to the yertily request for greatness by asking James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And in Mark's version of the story, he also asks them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism of, with which I am baptized. Friends, that is Jesus' response to our selfish lust for greatness too. When the world seems to tell us that we could be great if only we we would eat this and drink this and bathe with this and dress like this, Jesus welcomes us into a new paradigm of greatness. Jesus says, eat this. Take, drink this. Bathe yourself in these waters. And in doing so, you dress yourself in the love of God. Friends, as you leave worship today, I invite you, if you feel so moved, to touch these waters. To remember your baptism or pray for one that might be to come to know that you are loved by God, to know that you are good enough, and then to go forth to serve your God with joy. Amen. Let us pray. Take us as we are, O God. Mold our hearts and minds so that we might respond with joy to the greatness you have prepared us for. That kingdom and community where you will sit as ruler, not on our backs, but at our feet to wash them. Help us live into this reality that our hands and feet might be yours in this world, that we would no longer be blind and deaf, to the way that you are calling us to live, but might be excited to give it a shot and to do so with the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.